What happens when two bass road warriors spend quality time talking music and life with one of their peers? Find out every Monday at 8 on Notes from an Artist. Bassist educator author David C. Gross and bassist and head honcho of KnowYourBassPlayer.com, Tom Semioli, trade dates with the legends of rock, jazz, funk, blues, folk, country, and more. Notes from an Artist. Revealing conversations with the legends who've created the soundtrack of our lives. Every Monday at 8 on CygnusRadio.com. And check out previous episodes on our podcast. Notes from an Artist.Buzzsprout.com. Hi, this is David Gross, and along with my co-host, Tom Semioli, I want to welcome you to another edition of Notes from an Artist. Now, last week, we broadcast part one of our conversation with legendary rock photographer Bob Groon. And tonight, we want to continue with part two. But before we start, I want to remind you that you can also listen to part one via our Notes from an Artist podcast, available through all the podcast players, including Apple, Spotify, Amazon, and at our own page, notesfromanartist.buzzsprout.com. We left off last week with Bob relating his Tribeca Film Festival story when he was invited by both Kiss and Blondie to the private screenings of their documentaries. We pick up with him talking about how his iPhone is taking such great pictures. So, without further ado, let's continue with our conversation. Then I just went to, up to the stage and took some pictures with the phone, and I was amazed. It's so sharp, so clear, so perfectly exposed. I don't know if I could have gotten that kind of quality setting it myself with the, well, not even myself, but with the, the automatic, uh, you know, larger format camera. Because the phone has just been developed to give you that perfect picture. And in fact, what I noticed uh, two or three years ago, I think it was the Samsung coming out with a new one and the iPhone coming out with a new one, that the advertisements, the whole advertisement for a phone was about the quality of the picture, about how big the sensor was, about how big the file was. It's just about how you get such an amazing photo that people use their phone so much more as a camera. When you were like a photographer, you got in, in the old days, to, to take a picture, you needed a photographer. You needed you did, somebody yes. who knew how to set the focus, set the f-stop, set the, the speed, and know how that related to the speed or sensitivity of the film. There was a lot of math involved in taking a picture. And a complicated little machine that you had numerous settings. And if any of those settings weren't right, your picture wouldn't come out. So if you wanted a picture of something, you hired a photographer. Nowadays, anybody can take a picture. My, my son is a singer-songwriter and at one point he asked me to take some pictures he did a photo session for an upcoming album he, he finally got around the first couple albums he did it on his own which I was very proud of but then he finally said okay dad could you take my picture for this and I did a series of pictures we liked the pictures a lot he thought it was terrific and a week before the album came out he said dad I changed my mind my daughter Jasmine took such a much better picture so my eight-year-old granddaughter got the picture that was supposed to be mine and I couldn't knock her for it because it wasn't an accident it was like oh look she accidentally got this no she did a session with him she took about 15 pictures and she knew exactly what she wanted and she took enough pictures until she got exactly what she wanted and it's great it's a really good picture so but it showed me that yes anybody who thinks about taking a picture the mechanics have gotten so much easier that it's really more about thinking how do you want to crop it what moment do you want to capture which is still extremely important but the mechanics of getting the exposure and getting the picture to come out that's been taken care of that was the who on top of the pops doing pictures of Lily this is Notes from an Artist, CygnusRadio.com. And the most disconcerting thing that I find, though, is, so my my daughter went to see Post Malone on Wednesday. Uh-huh. And she came home and showed me the video. And showed me the video. And showed me the video. I said, <laughs> any point in this concert, did you take the phone, put it in your pocket, and watch the show? 
Oh, no, Dad, no one does that anymore. Yeah. Yeah, the whole point about having an experience is to show people that you're having the experience. Yeah. <laughs> you know, when, I see, when I see Green Day, Billy Joe comes out and he starts the concert saying, put your phone down. You're not going to be here again. We're here now. Be here now. Of course, most of the people don't listen to him. <laughs> yeah. yeah. They want to be here now and later. You know? Don't walk around through life looking at your life through a phone. <laughs> a life looking at your life looking at your life. Um, yeah. um, but but given the fact that you couldn't see your photographs right after you took them, did, did you know when you had a great shot or was it a revelation when you went into the dark room? You could have a feeling that you got a good shot. Yeah. But until you got home and developed it and blew it up, you didn't know whether the guy's eyes were open or not. You didn't know if it was slightly blurry. I mean, I've seen some pictures that I thought I got it. And I get home and I throw up the film. You see the film and it's like, oh, yeah, I got that moment. And then you blow it up and it's just blurred enough to not be useful. <laughs> and that's always heartbreaking. Uh, I remember very often, many times that when I was leaving a theater, people would say, hey, Bob, you get some good shots tonight. And I always turn around and go, I hope so. Because <laughs> you know? it wasn't until I got home and developed it that I'd even know if the film came out. I mean, sometimes you expose something wrong, or I used uh, Nikons, and then I used Olympus for a long time, and then I used uh, Canon once they got uh, really good in the 80s, uh, I, I started using the Canon. But with the Olympus, there was one tricky part that uh, the place where you change the lens, you, you can change the lenses pretty easily, but right behind that was where the speed was set. Instead of a separate dial, it was up behind the lens mount. So sometimes if you click the lens in there quickly, you might accidentally change the speed. So if I was at a party, now that, that was really important because the strobe light would only sync to the film at 60th of a second or less. So if you're using a flash and you use it, at the exposure was higher than a 60th of a second, you might only get half a picture at 125th of a second. Mm. Or if you clicked it up to 250th, you only get a quarter of a frame. So I could be at a party taking pictures of a bunch of people Three people standing together and two of them aren't in the picture. <laughs> that, when you get home and find out that half your role is only half a picture, that's a panic. I mean, then all of a sudden, you know, the whole job, the whole party, all these people came from around wherever and got together. You don't have a record of it anymore. There's no way to make up for that. Yeah. That's a complete fuck up. And it was so easy to do, to just accidentally twist that one more notch and, and your pictures wouldn't come out. So uh, that can't happen with a phone. And the fact That's that you true. see it immediately, you know what happens. A lot of times you take pictures of a selfie or something, and somebody says, oh, no, no, take another one. I don't like <laughs> We didn't have that choice back then. Yeah, but that was part of the excitement. Yeah, you lived, you lived in Japan. I mean, you did a lot of work in London and, of course, uh, your home, uh, New York City. What were your favorite venues to shoot in? Well, the ones where I knew the owner and they, would, they wouldn't bother me. <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah, I was very comfortable in CBGB's and Max's Kansas City. You were just listening to two tunes by the Ramones live at Max is Kansas City. You heard Havana Affair and then Listen to My Heart, followed by Blondie, live at CBGB's. A girl should know better. This is Notes from an Artist, CygnusRadio.com. I like the Beacon Theater, but not so much for photographs, because it's a big place. I, I mean, I, I, you know, as far as photographing live, I would say Max's and CB's, because I knew the owners well, and I, I was very comfortable in those clubs. And, and likewise, there was a club in Tokyo, that I knew uh, That was one of the most important punk bands out of Tokyo. It was a group called Friction, and they were doing a song called Gaping. This is Notes from an Artist, CygnusRadio.com. 
CBGB.com. It was like the CBGB of Tokyo, because that, that was one place I went a couple of times. I went to Tokyo first in 1974 with Yoko Ono, right. and I met a number of top-level people in the business, uh, which helped me come back a year later with the New York Dolls, and then I came several times with Kiss and Bay City Rollers. Now, that was a crazy selection for you. It was three tracks done live in Tokyo. The first was New York Dolls, then we had Kiss, and then we had the Bay City Roller. I don't know. It's a strange combination, but it seems to hold together. This is Notes from an Artist, CygnusRadio.com. Uh, when you're on tour in Japan, uh, they move very fast. It's very organized. And when they say 713, they don't mean 715. I mean, they are really on the dot over there. That's how I say we got on the wrong train by 30 seconds because the train behind us, 30 seconds later, was the right one. And literally 30 seconds. I couldn't believe we're on the wrong train. But anyway, after a number of visits, uh, five or six visits in the 70s, I wanted to get off the train or off the bus and see what was going on. Everything I saw in Japan was absolutely amazing. But on a tour, I never had time to stop and actually be there. So uh, by 1979, as uh, I was kind of burning out from all the excess of the 70s and I needed some place to dry out, I went back to Japan. I got an apartment there uh, and just stayed there for the better part of a year and really learned about Japan, about the culture. I made a lot of friends there. It's a fantastic place. It's still one of my favorite places to visit, Tokyo and Paris. And it's interesting you mentioned how well-received Yoko was. Uh, when she performed there, because here she's, you know, she's blamed for the breakup of the Beatles, among other things. But there she well, was, was really the, revered. That, yeah. that was the first big thing. I mean, Yoko came out of an avant-garde art scene, uh, right. which is very intellectual and something that people have to think about, and most people don't like to think at all. So uh, they didn't really understand her art, and of course, John was so infatuated with her, they thought it was her fault, uh, although... Nobody told John Lennon what to do. He did what he wanted to do. (laughs) He was very much in control of himself. He was not controlled by a woman or anybody. Anyway, so uh, that was kind of a a big deterrent towards her. And I didn't really know who she was when I first met her. I only know all the rumors about her. But I'm actually one of the few people who had seen her art before I heard about the Beatles. Uh, There was a magazine called The Realist. And one day I was reading the magazine. I still remember it was an odd thing. There was a Japanese woman who had a loft on Canal Street. And you could go, and it cost $5 to go in the loft. And in the loft, she had a large, uh, a number of very large black bags. And you could get in the bag, and uh, or you could get in the bag with someone. And in the bag, in those hippie day expression, you could do your thing, meaning anything you felt like doing. Or you could just go in a room and watch other people get in the bags and wonder what they were doing. And I just thought that was the strangest thing I had ever heard of that was called art. And that's why it kind of stuck out in my mind. And then about five years later, there was John Lennon from the Beatles inside a black bag with a Japanese artist. And I thought, well, there can't be two ladies doing that. (laughs) But I was always fascinated by her and her art. Uh, But when And and her singing just seemed so strange. I mean, it wasn't singing. It was this odd sound, uh, you know, oleating voice. And and then when I saw her in Japan, because then I saw her in Madison Square Garden, and people were booing. Nobody wanted to hear it. As soon as she started doing her sound, everybody was like, you know, really, uh, not everybody, but a lot of people were kind of down on that. They didn't want to hear it. In Japan... They listen, and I got to listen for the first time. And I realized that it's not singing, but she's like using her voice like an instrument, the way her friend Ornate Coleman uses his saxophone, uh, that she was emitting uh, emotional sound in a vocal style. And the audience in Japan really listened to it and really enjoyed it. And that was the first time I got to see what people, you know, were, what they were getting from. And I became a big fan after that. I really like what she does. And if you've ever seen her live, 
Uh, she's phenomenal. Other people can't do what she does. And, and the intensity of her emotion. Uh, but most people don't like intense emotions. That's why people get drunk and, and get high because they want to dull the emotions. They don't want to feel things at all. Uh, Yoko's art is very strong, very powerful, and makes you feel. When you see some of her art, you react strongly. Uh, people don't like to react strongly. And so they uh, they didn't like her art and they blamed her. Like, Yoko made me feel bad. Yoko made me feel at all. <laughs> you know? um, That's more than you can say for most people if they felt anything. Right, right. You kind of look at something, you go, oh, that's nice. You know, my wife's an artist and one of her, the, the comments she likes the least is, oh, that's very nice. She doesn't want it to be nice. She wants people to feel something, you know. Uh, and Yoko's, you feel very strongly and a lot of her art dealt with painful feelings. And when somebody would see it and they would feel pain, they would blame Yoko for making them feel pain rather than realizing how good she was that they, she made them feel so strongly. They were like, oh, Yoko made me feel all these things. I, I don't like her, you know. Yeah. Uh, one of her pieces is called The Nuclear Family. And it's a family sitting on a park bench. It's a big bronze sculpture. Uh, but the family is kind of melting, and it's very it's all black. And so the nuclear family it makes you think of is one that's just been blown up. And uh, it's kind of a double meaning, and it's a very powerful piece. When you see these black sculptures that are melting, it's very disturbing. And I talked to her about it once when it was in a museum, and she was saying that she hoped somebody would buy it, but not a private collector, but a museum or institution where people could see it, that it wouldn't get tucked away in somebody's backyard. And uh, she said uh, the best would be if somebody would buy it and put it in the city park so even more people could see it. And I said, well, you know, it's very disturbing. She said, yes. I said, you know, people see it, they're not going to like it. And she said, I know. You're not necessarily supposed to like it. She she did a show once at the Whitney Museum uh, in the 80s that was all brass, and it was a play on things she had done in the 60s. In the 60s, she did a lot of art that was very playful, uh, like a painting to be stepped on, which was a canvas on the floor of the gallery. And I was at an opening, actually, in the 60s. Uh, oddly enough, my father-in-law, had uh, he was the publisher of John Lennon's lithographs. Oh, John okay. did a, a set of lithographs. He, so we got to go to this opening. That was One side was John, and the other side was Yoko. And Yoko's side, there was this painting to be stepped on, and you could walk on it. And the whole idea was everybody would walk on it. At the end of the exhibit, all the footprints would be the artwork. And uh, she had another painting in her show in Syracuse. That she had planned a whole gallery event, uh, but she didn't know that there was a window in the gallery. And she got there, and she, there was this window right in the middle of one of the walls. And it wasn't something she had done, and she was uh, kind of upset at first that it was this thing to see that wasn't hers in the gallery. Uh, so she just titled it Painting to See the Sky By. So in the Whitney, they did all these things in bronze. And so there was a bronze window to see the sky by, but it was bronze. You couldn't see through it. It was like, I'm looking at it going, that's not a window. <laughs> and uh, and the thing on the floor was this giant thing that looked like a canvas, but it was made of bronze. And when I lifted my foot, and it's titled, Painting to be Stepped On, I lifted my foot, and the guard said, don't step on that. And I was like, but it says to be stepped on. He goes, don't touch the artwork. So I was talking to Yoko. I said, you know, it's very upsetting, all these things that used to be fun, and you made them out of metal, and they're not fun anymore. She said, welcome to the 80s. I'm glad you understood the show. If you weren't upset, you weren't thinking about it right. So a lot of her... think about it, her her vocalizing, I think, goes back to... uh, There was a woman on ESP Records, Patty something or other, and she did an album called um, Black is is the Color of My True Love's Hair. 
And the album was one of the most avant-garde, black, black. And <laughs> I honestly thought, you know, because Yoko was living in, the, in downtown at that time, that that's where she got some of her inspiration from. That was Patty Waters on ESP Records. Black is the color of my true love's hair. This is Notes from an Artist, CygnusRadio.com. I want to ask you to describe four different clubs, okay? So this is going to be like a Rorschach test. <laughs> Mercer Arts Center. Uh, that was very eclectic, uh, and that was one of the first, uh, that's where I first saw the New York Dolls. Um, but going up the stairs, they had a number of different rooms. And uh, one of the rooms, it was an old ballroom from, the, from the, um, the Broadway Central Hotel. It was the back of the hotel and it, where the ballrooms had been. And so there was one room, that, larger and smaller rooms. There was a large room that, that had been the coat check. And I think they had turned that into a boutique. And it was the first time I saw vinyl miniskirts and um, some very bright spandex things, you know, fluorescent spandex clothes and platform shoes. And that was one room. Uh, the room that actually was the kitchen for the old ballrooms uh, became an experimental video group was working in there. And they're still called The Kitchen today, 40 years later, more than 40 years later. Uh, but they got their name The Kitchen because they started out in The Kitchen, the Mercer Arts Center. Uh, and then there was what they called the Oscar Wilde Room. And in the middle, when you came up the stairs, in the middle, there was a bar, kind of a, a horseshoe bar. And mm -hmm. I remember the first time I went there, um, it's because I was working with the uh, China and Yoko and the Elephant's Memory Band. And the Elephant's Memory were managed by the same managers as the New York Dolls. And I went to the office one time to drop off some pictures of the Elephants. And the guy in the office said, oh, come to the Mercer Arts and see the New York Dolls. And so I went there and there's a bar in the middle and there was a little band stand at the end. And I was waiting for a band to come out. And they never came out. I had a beer or two and I left. And I went back the next time and I'm waiting for the band. There's a little band stand. And I see people going in and out of a door in a, hall, uh, in a wall. And after a beer or two, I thought that must be the men's room because so many people going in and out. So I walked over there, I walked in, and my life changed. It was like the Oscar Wilde room. One wall was like a, it was like Fellini. There was very steep uh, bleachers on one side. Mm -hmm. It just looked like a wall of people. And the other side was completely packed and crowded. And the middle of the crowd was the New York Dolls was playing, uh, almost not even on the stage. It was like on the, just surrounded by people, people dancing through the band and around the band. Um, that's what I remember them at the Mercer Arts Center. That was a great place. That was 1974, the New York Dolls doing pills. This is Notes from an Artist, CygnusRadio.com. Yeah, and, and then the it fire. It didn't fall down like in the movies. Uh, the, the building fell down in the afternoon. And it actually started shaking for a couple of hours. So everybody got out of the building. Nobody got hurt when the building fell down. Okay, next, the Diplomat Hotel. Well, that was a seedy hotel on 43rd Street off Times Square. And when the Dolls played there, it was kind of an old-fashioned, used-to-be ballroom. Like, when you go into a ballroom and the floor, it's a wooden floor, but all the boards are kind of uneven now because it's, uh, you know, 75 yep. years later. <laughs> Uh, I, still really, I remember the Diplomat Hotel was a very seedy kind of place. And those are the kind of places where you feel comfortable. Like nobody's looking at, you know, where they you, you spill the drink on an expensive floor or anything. You know, you can really uh, have fun in a place that's comfortable. Like going to your friend's basement. It's not the living room, you know. It's, you know, uh, the Diplomat. So that is a very, very rare track. That was Friday, July 13th. 1973 at the Diplomat Hotel. I was there. It's the first time I ever saw Kiss. 
was also the last time I ever saw a kiss, but that's another story. This is Notes from an Artist, CygnusRadio.com. Then, uh, soon, like within a couple of years, they opened um, uh, Les Ardennes. It was a nightclub that they opened on the, the roof of the Diplomat Hotel. And uh, I remember the party for the 1976. That was probably one of John's last appearances before he went into retirement around that time, 75, right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, when he came out with Yoko for the Grammy Awards, and then after that, Stone was born. Right. And John didn't come out in public till 1980. Right, right. Next. The Mud Club. Uh-huh. Well, if you remember being there, you weren't there. <laughs> <laughs> the Mud Club came out in the very early 80s. Uh, I always thought it was the end of the 70s, uh, but I think it actually opened in 81 or 82. It was a place you went late at night, very stoned. It wasn't really a place to get stoned. It was a place you went to, you already whacked out of your head. Uh, and it was four floors of fun. I remember it was like upstairs, and uh, uh, Chichi uh, Valenti was the door person. Uh, her and uh, what was his name? Um, Johnny Danell was one of the DJs. It was really very avant, very loose. Uh, I just remember everybody being on drugs. It, it was really a pretty stoned out scene. Uh, really great music, Johnny Dinell, and what was the other guy's name? Um, um, oh, I'm going blank. Um, he's a good friend of mine, I should remember. Uh, anyway, a couple of really good DJs. You stagger out of there around four in the morning. That was the B-52s doing Rock Lobster live from the Mud Club. This is Notes from an Artist, CygnusRadio.com. And around the corner, because uh, they were a block south of Canal Street, right. and uh, just between Broadway and whatever else was uh, on the east there. And... Um, and right on the corner of Broadway and Canal Street was a, uh, a Hamburg place that was 24 hours. So you'd see people in there in a neon light having breakfast. <laughs> <laughs> Great place. And Steve Mass was the guy who ran it. And I actually just saw him recently. He's had some serious health issues and he was just walking down the street smiling, telling me about it. I've never met anybody who had more who had an aneurysm and lived and he had like several and he's still wow. Away. Uh, but the Mud Club was a, a real innovation that uh, he was one of those club owners. There's a couple of club owners like Hilly Crystal, the CBGB, uh, or Steve Mess, who opened a club for people to have a good time, for him to have a good time, but not necessarily to make a lot of money. Like decisions were based on, on making money, they were based on comfort level and comfort level for the, uh, the clientele. And um, and Steve Masters, you know, he ran a good club. The Mud Club was great. And lastly, Pyramid. Oh, Pyramid. Yeah, well, that was a, an early uh, gay performance club uh, that was quite wild. And uh, and it gave a, a lot of perform- gay performers a place to, where they could be more publicly outrageous. Uh, you know, they go-go girls who were guys. I don't know. You're allowed to say that nowadays. Everybody's a they nowadays. I guess so. Who <laughs> cares? Uh, uh, yeah, the internet. I, my, this my is radio. You can say whatever. Yeah. <laughs> uh, my granddaughter was telling me about a friend of hers who's a, a they, and I said, you know, I'm a little old for that. I said, I just I don't know about they, them, or those. I know about people. I knew Jackie Curtis. Jackie Curtis didn't have a pronoun. Jackie Curtis's pronoun was Jackie. You know. Um, yeah. You didn't have to define. I consider myself this. People didn't consider themselves anything. They just were. You know, you're just who you are. You don't have to define who you are. You're just 
big do it, you know. And at the pyramid, uh, I don't remember people necessarily being defined. They were just outrageous. Uh, I, I have a thing in my life where if uh, some eyeball comes down the street, they usually know me. <laughs> uh, just because <laughs> the, the, the kind of I've done such a broad uh, cross set picture that there's something for everybody, and and a lot of people know my pictures. And uh, I remember being standing in front of the Pyramid Club and uh, with a girlfriend, and uh, two uh, you know queens came around the corner. And these are the kind of guys who have like six inch platforms and you know twelve inches of hair. And you know the guy looked like eight feet tall, and he comes around the corner. I remember elbowing my girlfriend, going, oh, "Whoa, check out these guys!" And the guy starts waving, "Hey, Bob." <laughs> and I, like, is there someone else around? You can't be me, right? Because I had never uh, met him. But RuPaul knew who I was. And he came over and he was thrilled to meet me. And uh, we actually started a friendship. And for a while, he lived in the neighborhood around the corner from, from my building here. I used to see him in D'Agostino without the wig. He was a very nice guy. <laughs> that was RuPaul doing Sissy That Walk. This is Notes from an Artist on CygnusRadio.com. He still is a very nice guy. And nowadays, he doesn't have to wig anymore. He's, he's actually bald. <laughs> And you're also very involved, or have been very involved, with a lot of charities. Which is- uh, yeah, I like the Tibet House. Those people need help. Tibet was always kind of on my bucket list. I still haven't gotten there. I don't know, a lot of places got crossed off because the politics are so iffy around the world now. Yeah, I always uh, thought that Tibet was a sacred kind of place and a sacred kind of people. And you don't really want to see their culture wiped out by a kind of communism that just doesn't believe in people having private spiritual beliefs. You know, uh, I think that people, sh- you know, that people are spirits and they should have spiritual beliefs. Um, and so I support several causes. One of them is Tibet House. Another one is um, Her Justice, which is a large group of lawyers who provide pro bono or free legal work for domestic violence victims, mm-hmm. which is something that's urgently important because people who get into a domestic violence situation, um, and you usually get into it through love. And then a person, you know, is very nice at the beginning, but then as they get to know you and you know each other, uh, they can flip out and be very dangerous and be very hurtful. And, uh, you know, Tina Turner, who I worked with a lot, wrote a book, and she was one of the first ones to really bring that out in public. She was not nearly the first person who suffered domestic violence, but she's the first one who made it a public issue because mm-hmm. her fame and her well-written book and then the movie that followed up brought that issue to the public. People are embarrassed and don't even want to talk about being in a domestic violence situation because they, they, a lot of people feel it's their fault. Right, right, right. They got into the relationship. They loved the guy. He was drunk. He didn't mean it. He won't do it again, whatever. And they end up in a, in a repetitive situation of violence. Working with Ike and Tina, I worked with them closely for several years. I never saw Ike hit or even threaten Tina. But if you hit somebody, if you beat them and hurt them, you don't have to hit them again. You can just raise your fist and that person will cringe. And so it's not as obvious to so many people as, as it would seem. You know, somebody has a black eye, they say, oh, I bumped into a door. That was really common. And anyway, her justice helps people survive that kind of situation. When you have to get away, you need legal advice. And so many people can't afford that. You need to... Just getting a divorce uh, takes a, a lawyer. A divorce is a very legal process. And um, and so I support Her Justice and what's the other big one? Food, um, the Food Bank. Uh, there's two big organizations Her uh, in New York here. Uh, God's Love We Deliver and the Food Bank, which helps to feed people. Uh, God's Love We Deliver is more 
for um, people who are ill and they deliver food. Another one that I, su- I do support is uh, Bailey House because they support, they, they provide food and medical and housing and medical care for people who are sick. It started with people who are AIDS and then of course this last year they've been extremely busy because when somebody who's single gets COVID, they don't have anybody to cover for them. They don't have anybody to pay their rent to pick up their medicine or things like that. So Bailey House does a lot. The food bank does a lot and they, um, but they also provide food for people to and lessons for how to cook at home. Provide healthy food that for less money they can buy actual, you know, raw food and have people teach people how to cook it. You know, if you give a guy a fish, you give him dinner, but right. if you teach him a fish, right. exactly. he's alive. Well, that, that's the theory behind that food <clears throat> that um, they teach people how to cook for themselves as well as the pumpkin food. Because if you don't have a meal, you can't start and do any of the other things. I mean, you have to have some strength to be able to walk out the door. So I I support the food banks. And the thing is, for me, I'm not a wealthy person. I never have been. Um, I still get checks in the hundreds and have to add them up to pay bills that come in. (laughs) You know, you guys as musicians, I'm sure you know what I'm talking about. Yeah, we know all about that, yes. (laughs) uh, Freelance people don't have a salary. (laughs) You wake Uh, up unemployed every day, as you say. You wake up unemployed every single day single day and have to figure out who's going to pay you today to get through. Uh, on the other hand, you have that freedom of deciding whether or not to work that day. I mean, not really, because you decided to get an apartment, you have to pay the rent, <laughs> and then you have exactly. to work. But I, I was, so I'm never really able to make a donation. I can't, you know, give $1,000 or even $100 usually uh, to somebody. Uh, but I can make a photo that somebody can buy for $1,000, and they'll give $1,000 to the organization. Whereas I can afford to make a print a photo print, it brings in a lot more money than I could donate myself. So I'm very happy to be able to have things that are worth money that other people can donate. Oh, that's great. That is great. Tom and I just recently got involved with Teen Cancer America, which is part of uh, the Who's charity, which is called Who Cares? Right, Roger Dalton. You know, you think of little kids with cancer or adults with cancer, but there's a whole middle ground of, of teenagers. And so we're, we're involved with that. We're going to be doing a benefit at the cutting room. We don't know when, hopefully 2022, somewhere between March and May. And right. of course, we'll invite you to that. Yeah, yeah, you know, you're yeah so. And well, thanks for being a guest, Bob. One last question. What what do you have left to do in your career? What What's the what's on the Bob Gruen bucket list? What must you do? It is true, because I have checked off a lot, but I'm 76. I don't have all that much time left anyway. Because <laughs> <laughs> when, I, when I had an exhibit in the Museum of Modern Art, my teenage bedroom installation was in the Museum of Modern Art. I was talking to the designer who had helped me put that together, and I said, I don't know where to go from here. I'm in MoMA. And he said, the moon. <laughs> so it'd be nice someday if somebody would put my John Lennon picture on the moon, you know, laser image, uh, you know, for some event or something. Maybe John's 50th uh, anniversary or something, or his 100th birthday, they'll yeah. project image on the moon. Other than that, actually, I'm looking forward, hopefully, uh, we're just talking to somebody like the Smithsonian Institute or some other museums to put my teenage bedroom uh, installation 
in a place like that and because it's part of the American culture. Because uh, what I did was, um, about 12 years ago, I did the first one in Sao Paulo. I was having an exhibit that was so elaborate and so beautiful. We were realizing that there was 280 pictures and frames on the wall. And it was kind of taking away from the fact that I didn't take these photos to be a moment in a frame on a wall. I took them for people to pin on the wall, for magazines and album covers and posters. And so we recreated a teenager's bedroom where the walls are covered with magazine pages and covers and pictures and of course since i made it all the pictures and all the magazine pages are mine i only picked pictures that you know i did a whole page or right. you know, the cover or things like that but we have a bed that actually there's a bedspread that was made one year that had my led zeppelin picture embroidered on the, on the bedspread so that's on the bed and all the walls are covered with uh, rock and roll pictures and and i have a soundtrack actually jerry blavitt from uh uh, Philadelphia, the DJ from the 50s. Right, right. He's still around today. He's still online every day. Uh, but Jerry Blavitt has this great rock and roll tape of him, and it, it's him talking uh, in between all the songs with a real exciting voice. So that's the soundtrack for the, the teenage bedroom. And it was so successful in the first exhibit that we've expanded our, I do it in almost every exhibit. Part of the gallery will be a teenage bedroom. Wow. And, uh, and in fact, it was one in Argentina where they had it downstairs in kind of a, uh, almost a vault-like room. It was very secluded. And you know how well, on the door, a lot of times, if there is a door, we put a danger zone. Like the first one in South Powell was yellow and black stripes because so many kids, teenagers, put a sign on their door, danger, you know, keep out. Nobody's allowed in. It's like their first private space. And uh, and, it's, and so many people come to my exhibit and they look at that room and they go, oh, that was my room when I was growing up. Right, right, yeah. <laughs> um, so I'm hoping that somebody like Smithsonian Institute will take that. Uh, we're kind of in negotiation for that now. That's great. What is it? He was the Geeter with the Heater, right? The Geeter with the Heater. That's Jerry Blavitt, the boss <laughs> with the hot I used yep. to listen to him when uh, my um, uncle was the health officer of Ventnor. So they lived in um, Atlantic City. So back in the oh, you can 60s, pick it up. I would hear, you know, the Geeter with the Heater. But yeah. three, year, three years ago, I had an exhibit at uh, Drexel University in Philadelphia. And, uh, and I, I contacted Jerry because... Years ago, I had to contact him directly to get a tape. There was a record I had. There was him on the air um, as a dance party, and his voice is on it, uh, and it's fantastic. Uh, but he didn't put that record out. He put out records that he had licensed all the different songs he played. And I said, no, I want the one where you on it. You know? uh, so then when I went to Pennsylvania, to Philadelphia, actually, he came to the exhibit. And it was like the biggest thrill for me to actually meet him. And he took us out to dinner at some Italian place. He knew all the owners. Uh, it was an amazing night to actually meet him. Uh, and spend oh, some- that's great. All right, gentlemen. Great talking, Bob. We'll let you know when this goes on the air. We'll send you the podcast right. links. And yeah, okay. when we have our pod performances, get on the subway and come to the cutting room. <laughs> all right, let me know. All right, we'll do. All right, gentlemen. Good to meet you. Thank All you right, back. thank you. Thanks for having me. That concludes part one of our conversation with photographer Bob Groom. A big thank you to Bob and, of course, co-host Tom Semioli. I encourage you to run right out and pick up Bob's new book, Right Place, Right Time, The Life of a Rock and Roll Photographer. It's a great way to relive all of the memories of the greatest decades of rock and roll. And we're being sponsored by DR Strings. Bass strings, guitar strings, you name it, they got it. They have some of the best strings out there today. 
so check them out. And if you've missed any of our previous shows or want to listen again, I also want to let you know that we are archiving all of our shows via our podcast, also titled Notes from an Artist, which you can find on all major podcast players or at notesfromanartist.buzzsprout.com. So, this is David Gross with co-host Tom Semioli. Thanks for listening. Have a great week. And we will see you next week with part two of the Bob Groon Conversation. Take care. Thank you.